All right, well, today as we return to our study of the book of 2 Samuel, we return as well probably to the most depressing part of the narrative of the life of David. We return as well to that part of this book in which the writer of 2 Samuel is chronicling for us skillfully, carefully, with great vivid detail, all of the different effects of the fall of David, of the two great sins of David that we studied together four weeks ago back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's devastating. If you've been studying through this in your personal worship, if you've been hanging out with us on Sunday morning and reading and studying through this with us together, you know that it has been absolutely devastating for David. It's been devastating for his family. It's been devastating for his nation. And if, like me, you've been in this study for a while now and you've just kind of fallen in love with this guy because he is amazing, all right, well, then it's been devastating for you personally. It certainly has been for me. I have watched this guy whom I have just so admired go from this towering figure of brilliance, this towering figure of wisdom, this towering figure of moral clarity and authority. He always knew exactly what the right thing was to do, and he always had the authority to do it. This man who stood head and shoulders above everyone, this man who had insight and ability to see through everyone and pretty much everything, this guy who was the clear and undisputed leader of everyone around him, okay, it has been devastating for me to watch him go from that, and now listen to this description, because it pains me, honestly, to say it, to a tottering, feeble, weak little man, an empty robe. It's devastating. A man who far from standing above everyone now stands beneath them, who far from seeing through everyone and pretty much everything is a pawn in his own story. He's seen through by them. He's not leading, guys. He still has the title to lead. He just doesn't have the capacity, and indeed, he's being led about by everyone else. One of the most devastating parts of the whole narrative of the life of David, at least for me, in the last couple of weeks, there's a lot to choose from. It's just the deconstruction, it's the diminishment of David himself. And it's a deconstruction, a diminishment, that the writer of this book so very clearly ties directly to his fall, to his sins. And so then, for example, not only did David make the morally and politically horrifying decision to forcibly take Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his 37 most mighty men, the daughter of one of his other 37 most mighty men, the granddaughter of one of his chief advisors. Okay, not only did he make the politically and morally horrifying decision to forcibly take her and then to commit adultery with her, oh, but then he compounded that error as well when he discovered that she was pregnant by having Joab, the commander of his armies, put her husband to death, murder her husband, Uriah, out at the battlefront. And I don't know if you remember this, but the plan that he concocted for Joab was utterly defective. He wrote it all out. He gave it to Uriah. Uriah himself brought it to Joab. And Joab read it and thought, wait a minute, this is a cover-up, right? Because this is a dumb plan. David, if you're trying to cover things up, this is not the way to do it. And look, as I read through that passage of Scripture, as you read through that passage of Scripture, if you're reading through it thoughtfully, you had the exact same thought. And so what then did Joab do? He corrected the plan. He fixed it. 
He did it the right way. Now, wickedly, but if it's a cover-up, this is defective. Okay, now think through that for a minute with me. When prior to David's fall had he ever made a moral blunder, a political blunder, a strategic blunder? If it exists, it's a short list. He's like Mary Poppins. He's practically perfect in every way until he falls. And then he's devastated. He's not himself anymore. He's an empty robe, and we saw evidence of that again last week as we saw the two great sins of David now being recapitulated, being repeated. It's the same pattern, but now it's in the lives of his two oldest sons, the two would-be kings. And so then last week we watched as Amnon, for example, the oldest son of David, the crown prince of Israel, the one who, if David had died at this point in the story, would have become the king of Israel. Okay, we watched him lust after his half-sister Tamar and lust so passionately that he was visibly changed, physically sickened. And even though David, of all the people in the narrative... Well, most knew what that kind of passion was like, for he had had it in some sense with Bathsheba. He fails to recognize it in the crown prince, the son of his that he should have been paying the most attention to. And yet, Jonadab, his nephew, who twice proved himself last week to be far more insightful than David, think about that, recognized it immediately. And so he and Amnon then concocted a plan by which Amnon could rape his half-sister tomorrow. Think about that. And, but it's bigger than that because it's a plan in which David, according to their plan, became a pawn. He played a part unwittingly. And so then what do they think of his wisdom? What do they think of his brilliance? What do they think of his ability to see through people and circumstances and situations at this point in his life? Not much, guys. And here's the deal. They're right because it goes according to plan. And so then according to plan, David unwittingly sent Tamar to Amnon, who just like David had forcibly taken Bathsheba, then he forcibly took her. And just like David then discarded with Bathsheba, he then discarded with her. Except here's the difference. What David did privately, Amnon did publicly and apparently without any fear whatsoever of repercussion from the king. So what does he think about David's moral clarity and authority? And here's the deal. He was right. David did nothing. Not a thing. So I want you to think about the message that sent then, first of all, to the people of Israel. I mean, if you're an Israelite, now you're playing that out. It's done publicly. You know about this. It's in the papers. So, okay, then is the king no longer just? Is that what's happened? Does the king play favorites? Does the law of God, which prescribed death to anyone who engaged in that kind of activity, not apply to the sons of the king? And if a daughter of the king is not going to be protected by the king, then whose daughter is going to be protected by the king? In fact, what woman in Israel, period, is now safe from the sons of the king, or at least from the son of the king, who will become the next king? So do the math on that. Because now, if I'm an Israelite, I'm thinking, all right, wait a minute, so let me see if we get this right. David, if you die, Amnon becomes the king. 
So we get, if you die, as a result of your foolishness and inactivity, of your result of your doing nothing, when you die, we get this lawless, vicious, rapacious tyrant as our next king. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thanks for thinking of us. That's leadership. Think about that. And now think about the message it sent to David's family. How would you feel if you were one of David's daughters? don't have to think much about that, do you? How would you feel if you were one of David's sons? We parents govern over the hearts of our children, do we not? So think of the souls of these young men for a minute, because we're called to think of the souls of our kids and what is good for them. And to manifest a wisdom to shape them, to not do that which would be bad for them. Well, they already have all kinds of challenges. And why is that? Because solely for reasons related to genetics, not as a result of any wisdom in them or brilliance in them or activity in their life or achievements that they've acquired, nothing having to do with other than their DNA. These young men are already powerful, wealthy, famous, and privileged. Now, what soul of a young man can handle those four things already? And now, what message have they been sent? The message is, you can do anything you want. I mean, if you can rape your own sister and get away with it, like, what else is on the list of things that you can't do? And, of course, last week... We also saw that when Absalom, the second oldest son of David, next in line behind Amnon for the, for the throne, when Absalom realized that his sister Tamar was not going to be avenged by the king, he took matters into his own hands, did he not? And again, he did it in a way that made David a pawn in his plan. So he has the same estimation, does he not? He figures David will not figure it out. And again, he's right. And so what happens then is that just as David was tricked into sending Tamar to Amnon, David is tricked yet again into sending Amnon to Absalom. And just as David had had Joab, his servant, execute Uriah, oh man, Amnon has his servants execute, or Absalom rather, has his servants execute Amnon. And here again, what David did privately, Absalom does publicly. He calls a feast at his country estate. He invites all the sons of the kings, and right in the middle of the great feast, when they're all having a good time, he gives his signal to his servants, and they execute Amnon in the presence of every one of the other sons of the king, all of which go running out of the house, probably figuring that they were next. And Absalom, whose mother is from the land of Geshur, She's a daughter of the king and queen of Geshur. It's a political marriage with David. Well, he goes off to Geshur, which is not far away. It's just east of Galilee, east of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes to stay with his grandparents for a while, and David does nothing. Nothing. Not a thing. So what's the message that sends to the nation? Well, again, is he not just? Is he playing favorites? Does the law of God which prescribed death for Absalom? For anybody who engaged in premeditated murder, which is what that was. Well, does that not apply to the sons of the king? 
And if a son of the king is not protected by the king, then whose son is? Who is? And once again, David's foolishness and inactivity left Absalom now as the crown prince of Israel, albeit in exile, but nevertheless, he's the crown prince of Israel. So here again, it's like, hey, thanks, David. Great choice. Thank you so much. Instead of the rapacious man, we get the murderer. And he'll be the next king. Because you're doing absolutely nothing. And think about it as well from the perspective of David's family. I mean, look, how would you feel if you were one of David's sons? at this point, all of which are standing in line in some order of succession for the throne of Israel. Listen, the guy who number two guy just knocked off the number one guy, and the king did nothing. So what's to prevent the rest of these guys from beginning to knock each other off? I don't think they ever had another meal together, do you? Seriously, like Thanksgiving? Nobody's coming. Can you imagine the suspicion Can you imagine the intrigue? Can you imagine the thoughts that they had about each other? The way they jockeyed. Good grief. This is dysfunctional. And not just for the family, but for the entire nation. One of the most devastating parts of this whole deal for me because I have become such an admirer of David. It's just watching him decompose. It's watching him fall apart. And it's a deconstruction, it's a diminishment that the writer of 2 Samuel connects directly to his sin. And so then for all of the different lessons that there are in these stories, the the lesson that jumped out to me at least is that sin brings us low, guys. It makes the most brilliant of us dumb. It makes the wisest foolish. It makes the most morally clear and authoritative, morally confused, morally blind, and completely powerless. It takes those of us who are capable in leadership, leading our own lives, leading the lives of others, and it ruins us. It brings us low. But Jesus lifts us up. And so as we pick up our study again today in 2 Samuel 14, we'll begin in verse 1 here in a second. We pick up as well this pattern that we've seen now, this pattern of David's sin that's being repeated, recapitulated in the lives now of David's sons. And if you go back to that original cycle, well, what happened next? David sins with Bathsheba, David kills Uriah, and then what happens? What happens is that God sends Nathan, a prophet from the Lord, to David, and he sends him to David with a story from the Lord designed to change David's heart. So now what happens? Well, we've seen the sins repeated in the life of Amnon, in the life of Absalom. Ah, now another person will come to David. And it's not going to be a person sent from God. It's going to be a person sent from Joab. And it's not going to be Nathan or even some other prophet, but it's going to be a wise woman of Tekoa. And she too will come bringing a story, but not from the Lord, from Joab, but nevertheless designed to change the heart of David. And David in his deconstructed and diminished state will treat these two words very much the same way. 
We pick up our study today in 2 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 1, where we read that now Joab, the commander of David's army, and the son of Zeruah, who is David's sister. So Joab, and we've said this in the past, but a little reminder, is David's nephew. He's part of David's family. He knows the heart of the king. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. That is to say that he wanted to reconcile or somehow with Absalom, if you will, that he still loved, had affections for Absalom, but that he couldn't at this point in his life figure out a way to make it all work. So Joab's going to figure it out for him. Who's thinking strategically now for the nation and even personally for David? It's Joab, but here's the deal. Joab is not going to do this because he cares about David and Absalom's relationship. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. Joab is concerned for Israel. And here's his concern, and it's a good concern. He's recognized that David is not going to affect justice on Absalom. So he's going to leave him in line for the king. He it will become the next king, maybe, depending on how it all plays out, and that's the point, when David dies. And so Joab is looking down the road, and David is old at this point, and so he's going, all right, if David dies today, we've got a major problem as a nation because we've got all these sons of David who are all lined up for the throne, and the one who's actually first in line for the throne is in exile, and so now what's going to happen? Because some of these other sons, or at least one of these other sons, could claim the throne, and then we're going to have a problem because this other guy's going to claim the throne, and it's going to rip the nation apart. So David, if you're not going to kill Absalom, if you're not going to affect justice upon this murderous young man, you're going to actually leave him in line as the next king. We need to bring him home. We can't have this confusion upon your death. We need to establish a clear succession plan. And step number one is getting him back from exile. Joab's the thinker in the story. David is passive. He's the pawn in the story. So we read, and so Joab sent to Tekoa, a town in the hill country of Judah, about nine miles south of Jerusalem, and he brought from there, again, not Nathan or some other prophet of the Lord, but a wise woman, and the word wise here means somebody who is clever or skillful, and she is all of that. And he said to this woman, he said, I want you to pretend to be a mourner And so put on your mourning garments and do not anoint yourself with oil. Don't get all showered up and put on your perfume and all that. I want you to pretend like you're in mourner. Dress the part because you're a play actor. Behave like a woman who has been in mourning many days for the dead and then go to the king whom Joab obviously believes is going to fall for this ruse. What does that tell you? Everybody's reading David the right way, it seems, or at least the same way. Go to the king and speak thus to him. And so Joab, as opposed to God, put the words of this story into this mouth, into the mouth of this woman. And when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to the king that she's knowingly going to deceive. It's all a fraud. And she said, save me, O king. Now, why does she say that? Because that's the role of the king in the Bible. The role of the king in the Bible is to bring salvation. David's the king. But who else is the king? Who ultimately is the king? Like since the beginning of this year, we've been going, yeah, the king is not Saul. You know what? The king is not David. The king ultimately that we're focused on in every one of these stories is Jesus. And he is a very different kind of king. But his job is to save us too. This ought to be our cry, but in earnest and in truth. It's to fall on your face before the true king 
and to say, save me, O king. And by that, I don't just mean save me from my sins. We certainly need that. But it's worse than that. You see, we need to be saved from ourselves. Because David is not the only broken person. He's not the only one whose capacities have been deconstructed and diminished. He's not the only one who does dumb things, who is subject to foolishness, whose wisdom is not wise, and who's no longer capable of leading his life for the lives of others. We need Christ to save us from far more than just our failures. We need His brilliance, His wisdom, His moral clarity and authority, and we need His leadership. That's the idea. But anyway, the woman, the play actor, she's dressed the part, she comes to the king, she falls on her face to the ground and pays homage, we'll just put that in quotes, and she says, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? And she now answers. And here comes Joab's story. And again, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is persuade David to take Absalom and to allow him to come home so that when David dies, no civil war. Absalom takes over. So that's the design of the story. She says, alas, I am a widow. And the widow here actually represents the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is a widow in distress like she pretends now to be. She says, I am a widow in distress is the idea. And my husband, who is the David figure in the story, is dead. Okay, he's not dead yet, but he's going to be dead. They're looking forward to that death and saying, what's going to happen then? And that's kind of the point. And your servant had two sons. Uh Uh-oh. And they quarreled with one another in the field. Sounds like Cain and Abel. And there was no one to separate them. And as a result, one struck the other and killed him. That is to say, Absalom killed Amnon. And now she says, well, everything's messed up for me. I'm in distress. The whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And then she says, and she, they would destroy the heir also. Thus, thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so then what is she asking for? She's asking for the king to protect her by showing mercy to her son, which murdered his brother. Bring Absalom home. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. I think what he's saying is, I don't really know what to do with this case. So give me some time, and I'll think about it. He's diminished. But she won't be denied. She keeps pressing him. She keeps pressing him. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. And so the king said, All right, look, I'm going to give you relief, okay? So like if anybody bothers you or harasses you about your son, you know, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. I'll protect you and then I'll decide the case when I get to it. And then she says, No, 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 no. That's not enough. Please let the king... Invoke the Lord your God. What would God do in this situation? That's why I said it sounds like Cain and Abel. It's a very skillful tale. I mean, all the way through this, we've seen how the writer is is writing the story after the pattern of the fall of Adam. 
been developing that all the way through this. But what happens with Adam and Eve's two sons? One rises up in the field and kills the other. And God spares the murderer. See how skillful this is? She's manipulating David. (laughs) She's calling these things to mind. Invoke the Lord your God. What would he do, she's saying. Didn't you catch the reference to the in the field part, man? By the way, invoking the Lord his God is not something I've seen in the last few chapters. Have you? Like I haven't seen David coming to the Lord his God and going, holy cow, would you look at what is happening in my house? Lord, what do I do about this guy Amnon? And then having blown that, Lord, what do I do about this guy Absalom? It's like he's just defeated. Invoke the Lord your God, she says, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. That's the point. And so David just concedes. He says, as the Lord lives, that's a vow, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. He says, okay, fine, we'll let your son live. And then she springs the trap on him. And the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. And he said, speak. And she says, hey, you know what? This whole story that I've been telling you about my son and me and my dead husband and the whole deal. Yeah, none of that's actually real. Well, not in my life, but it's very real in yours. So the widow, that would be me, that's Israel, and we are big time in distress, O king, because someday you're going to die, and here's the deal. Your two sons have quarreled, and one rose up and killed the other, and he is the crown prince of Israel, and he is living in exile. And when you die, we're in trouble. And so just as you showed mercy to my fictitional son, you now need to show mercy to your very real son, and you need to bring him back for the sake of his mother Israel of the widow that you will leave behind upon your death. And David says, all right. So he allows Absalom then to come back from Geshur to Jerusalem, but not into the court of the king. He won't give him that privilege. He allows him to come back, but not into his presence. He won't afford him that honor. And so it's kind of like David forgives him, but not really, or he pardons him, but not really, like he gives Absalom everything he's looking for with his left hand, and then he reaches back with his right hand and he takes it all away. Now, what do you think that foreseeably, to everyone I think, perhaps but David, is going to do in the heart of this young man, whose soul is already so broken, it seems, and who is already so wounded by his dad and so full of bitterness and contempt for him. Is that going to endear him to Pops or maybe not? Well, we'll see how it plays out next week, but I'll tell you. What happens is that Absalom goes, hey, you know, um, I recognize that I'll become the king when you die. And um, yeah, I don't think I want to wait. I don't want to wait. And he builds a conspiracy against his father that at some point had to be foreseeable to pretty much anybody with eyes except David. David is an empty robe. David is a shell of his former self. 
David is a picture of fallen humanity, of me and of you. It's a devastating story. One of the most devastating parts has just been watching him deconstructed, just watching him fall apart. He was like Adam. He was, he was practically perfect in every way. I know that's Mary Poppins, but, but right? And then he falls, and every part of his being is infiltrated. Sin brings us low. It makes the brilliant dumb. It really does. So, I mean, think about what it does to average people. It makes the wise foolish. It makes the morally clear and, author- and authoritative blind and confused and powerless. It ruins our ability to lead our own lives, much less the lives of other people. It brings us low, guys, but Jesus lifts us up. And, you know, I know what you want to say. You want to say, yeah, but Tom, I've been studying this passage of Scripture all week in my personal worship, and I've listened to everything that you've said this morning, and sorry, but I just don't see that part in this story, and I don't see it in this story or in this chapter either. I don't, but that's why I'm so thankful that there are all these other chapters in the Bible, chapters that come to us, and they say to us, if I can just summarize them, hey, here's what you need to do as part of fallen humanity as one who is shattered like David. You need to bring not just your sin to Jesus. You need to bring yourself to Jesus. And you need to confess that the salvation you need is really in regards to both. And then in the words of Christ Himself, you and I need to get up every single day and die to our stupidity and die to our wisdom, which left to ourselves, really? I mean, if I'm concocting it, it's foolishness. Die to that which we would call morality. Die to our right, we'll put that in quotes, to lead our own life, even though if we're believers in Christ, we're owned by Him. We need to die to life as we in our sin-diminished, sin-deconstructed fallen state would define it and then lead it. And we need to hand it day by day over to the Lord and say, you know what? Okay, here's the call. It's take up your cross daily. That's the language of death and follow me. So Lord, where are we going today? Because there's only one unfallen, unbroken one. There's only one who is truly brilliant and wise and morally clear and authoritative and actually competent and capable of leading my life or your life. There's just one, and his name isn't David. It's Jesus. So I'm going to close with this. Who's leading your life right now? Just be honest. There's two candidates. Here we go. You ready? You and Jesus. That's it. I really think that's it. Who is it? You're like, no, my parents. No, no, no. You and Jesus. That's it. Who is it? You know the answer, don't you? Because the Spirit goes, come on, you know. You know who it is. And what do your spiritual practices and habits say? What does your personal worship say? You're like, man, I, you know, I'm just my first time here, so I don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about personal worship. Go to our website. It's very well laid out. 
It's a means by which day by day you take the same passage of Scripture that we look at on Sundays and then again that we talk about in our community groups and you work through it after the pattern of the gospel Monday through Friday, prayerfully. It's a way of studying the Bible so that you find out not just what it says, but what it's saying to you. That's kind of the idea. That's why I asked the question, what does your personal worship habits say, your prayer life and your time in God's Word? Because it's hard to follow somebody that you never even talk to, isn't it? I don't even know you, but, you know, where are we going today? I'm not even asking the question. I... What does that say? What does your church life and commitment to corporate worship say? What we do here, when we come together in the presence of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and sit together, all of us, under the teaching of His Word, every one of us, starting with me. What does the community of people that you do life with say? And do you do life with other believers that you let into your life to help you to follow this one called Christ? To preach the gospel to you when you need it, to battle your own foolishness? What does your willingness to serve Jesus and your ethic of generosity say? So who is leading your life right now? And here's why that's important, because sin, man, it brings us low, devastating consequences. But Jesus lifts us up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do praise You for the goodness that you have given to us freely in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that our standing before you has, well, nothing to do with our efforts, but entirely have to do with his. We praise you for the unfallen one who is indeed perfectly brilliant and perfectly wise, perfect in his morality, his authority the all-competent one who loves us so much that He laid down His life as our substitute, taking upon Himself our sin, Lord, washing it away at the expense of His life, and then rising again to defeat death for us as well. God, You have purchased us. Draw us to Yourself. Create in us by Your Spirit a longing to open Your Word and to know You. A humility that says, you know what? I need to be saved not just from what I've done, but I need to be saved from me. And to find that salvation in a growing relationship with Christ. So lead us there, Lord, we pray. And do that for Your own glory, that the world might see order in the midst of its chaos, at least in our little lives. Beauty in the midst of its ugliness, at least as we can best show forth your face. Do these things, we pray, for your glory and for the good of this, your people, whom you have claimed in Jesus' name. Amen.